Evening. I'm reading Psalm 2, which is on page 543. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our second reading this evening is Psalm 76, which you can find on page 589 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 76. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. You are radiant with light, more majestic than mountains, rich with game. The valiant lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Well, hello. I'm sorry not to be in church in person, but I'm recording this on Saturday afternoon at home. 
I do hope this doesn't become a way in which we do all of our sermons, but in current circumstances, it is tremendous to have the technology to do this. Let me pray as we get going. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have spoken to us through the prophets, through your written word, our Bible, and through Jesus, your living word. I pray that your word will be real to us and will guide us. And we give you thanks for the technology which we have and ask that it will not distract us, but will help us. Amen. God is great. God is great. Well, is that what you expect to hear from the preacher at a Christian church in an East Anglian village? Or do you only expect to hear it on London Bridge, the battle cry of an Islamist terrorist? But this is how Psalm 76 opens. If you haven't got your Bible open, please may I ask you to turn to page 589 so that we can look at Psalm 76 together. And verse verse 1 says this, God is renowned in Judah, in Israel. His name is great. What is the 21st century Christian in 21st century East Anglia to do with this thought, with this psalm? Why, you may ask, is this psalm so aggressive? What are we going to do with it? Shall we forget about it? and hope that those to whom we speak of the love of God fail to discover it? Or can we find out how it still speaks to us and to our friends, family, neighbours and workmates? After all, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking and training in righteousness. So let's put it in context and try to understand what it meant to those who heard it first. This psalm may allude to the remarkable deliverance of Judah from the Assyrian army of Sennacherib in about 700 BC during the reign of the good king Hezekiah. The angel of the Lord struck down about 185,000 Assyrians who had been besieging Jerusalem. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17 to 19. And you can also read about it in Sennacherib's own account on the Rassam Cylinder in the British Museum, always assuming that your grasp of cuneiform writing is up to it. The key thing about the event is that it was not Hezekiah and his army which defeated the Assyrians, it was the angel of the Lord. Maybe this psalm was written for a worried congregation. Let's turn to it now and see what it said to its first hearers. Well, it starts as it means to go on. Verse 1 says that God is renowned and God is great. He is renowned in Judah and he's great in Israel. At this time, remember, the Hebrews were split into two kingdoms. The descendants of Judah formed one kingdom and the descendants of the other 11 sons of Jacob formed the kingdom of Israel. God was great in both nations, in other words, across all of the Hebrews, and God lived among them. We read in verse 4 that God is majestic, God is radiant. And this echoes what we know about him from Moses' encounter with him on Mount Sinai, when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. God is also a plunderer, 
Verse 5. Plunder. Hmm. The imagery is now becoming to get a bit difficult. This is language which is unlikely to win you prizes from the liberal elite. But let us look at verse 5 more carefully before we reach that conclusion. Verse 5 tells us that the valiant lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. It's a picture of defeated enemy soldiers, dead and dying after the battle, gasping their last breaths in the mud, blood and gore of the battlefield, groaning in pain, fatally vulnerable. Last week, I watched a film called The King. It's a film about Henry V. You can see it on Netflix. And it opens with the victors walking the battlefield, taking weapons and valuables from the helpless, from the dead. And it ends with a similar scene after another battle, the Battle of Agincourt. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands, and the plundered enemy is humiliated. Well, we don't do that anymore. Today's Geneva Conventions and the laws of war require soldiers to respect enemy combatants and to treat their injuries. But nonetheless, those enemy combatants will feel defeat and they will feel humiliated. And that is how God's unrepentant enemies will feel when he wins the last battle and when he pronounces the last judgment. I think it's in that way that we should understand this reference to plundering. The theme of judgment continues in our psalm. Verses 7 and 8 tell of God as judge, which is unfashionable today. Tim Chapman tells a story of when he was at a wedding reception, seated, and talking with a congenial fellow guest, an interesting an engaging conversation was had. But Tim mentioned the word sin, and it produced an instant adverse reaction. I can't stand that word, said the fellow guest. Why? The problem was that the concept of sin means that you are making a judgment. But we kid ourselves if we say there is no such thing as sin. In fact, it's a paradox of today that many who classify themselves as tolerant are themselves intolerant. They reject any absolute values, but hold to their own absolute that there are no absolutes. Those who disagree are condemned, and so the idea of judgment is rejected. But those who disagree are then themselves judged and effectively classed as sinners. So can we drop any idea that judgment can be avoided or that judgment is wrong? But didn't Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged? The judgment which Jesus advises against is the judgment, the judgment made about a person which involves that person's condemnation, which involves that person's rejection. That is a judgment which God reserves to himself. You know, 
Even the judgment and sentence in a criminal court does not involve that sort of condemnation. It always carries with it an element of rehabilitation and the hope of restoration. Now, we actually make judgments every day, and it's right to do so. We judge whether to buy from John Lewis's or from Harrods. We judge whether the film we just watched was good or not. And we even judge whether the preacher is any good or not. But these judgments do not condemn. At least I hope they don't. So the psalmist asks, can anyone stand in front of God when he is angry? Can anyone stand in front of God when he is angry? The angry God will reject, judge and condemn. If we are to stand in front of our angry God, we need something else. We need God's mercy in order to stand in front of him. And we see, as we read the very next two verses, we see that God is also a saviour. The psalmist writes, Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. You see, everybody's worried, because deep down everybody knows that they have done something which is wrong. The land feared and was quiet when you, God, rose up to judge. To save all the afflicted of the land. You see, God rises to both to judge and to save. But nobody is worthy of being saved. Even Hezekiah's people, the kingdom of Judah, are not worthy of being saved. But they are God's chosen people. And in this siege, in this battle, in this judgment, he is going to save them. It's a picture of the ultimate saving offered by God when he dies on the cross to save us. Hezekiah doesn't save Jerusalem. God relieves Jerusalem. God saves Hezekiah and his people from Sennacherib and the Assyrian invaders. Well, this brings us next to verse 10. And verse 10 is a bit of a problem verse, and we mustn't duck this. You can see the problem if you look at the footnote. There are differences between the translators as to what the Hebrew means. The text in the footnote is reckoned by respectable commentators to be closest to the Hebrew words. And it seems to me that the NIV paraphrase reflects the idea behind what we see in the footnote version, namely that even mankind's wrath, such as the invasion and siege by Sennacherib, redounds to God's glory and therefore his praise, because man's, mankind's anger gives an opportunity for God's righteous anger and his righteous fair judgment to be displayed. God is worthy of our praises. And lastly, we have the psalmist's advice. And the psalmist's advice is that we should dedicate ourselves to the Lord our God, or as he writes, that we should make vows and bring gifts. The psalmist reiterates and rams home his message. God is great. He is so great, 
that rulers and kings fear him. In summary, the takeaway points for the original audience will have been, firstly, God is great, he's renowned, he's radiant, he's glorious, and he's majestic. Secondly, God is a great judge, with the ability to reduce us to abject humiliation, and he's also a compassionate saviour. So, thirdly, dedicate yourself to him and bring him the offerings which you can. So now we must ask ourselves how this plays out in 2020. Well, God's message to his people in the 21st century is the same as it was when the psalmist first wrote. God was great then and he is great now. God is radiant and majestic. He can humiliate, and there are those who will be humiliated by him. He judges. He was a saviour then, and he is our saviour now. And it's clearer for us, of course, than it was for the Old Testament Hebrews. We see that God in Jesus pays the price for our sins. He takes away the humiliation. Or perhaps it's better put like this. If we humble ourselves by accepting that we have done wrong, that whatever we do, we cannot put it right ourselves, God himself supplies what is necessary to reconcile us to him. And it's very humbling to realise that. But it's there, it's there for the taking, it's the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah writes about in chapter 66, the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. These are the ones I, the Lord, look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Well, how does this change us today? Firstly, today we find ourselves in a very serious situation. COVID-19 has spread across the world. By lunchtime on Saturday the 14th of March, over 5,500 people have died worldwide and there have been over 149,000 confirmed cases. The USA has closed its borders to most European countries. The UK has moved into what is called the delay phase and people with persistent coughs and or a fever are told to self-isolate. Football matches are cancelled and the London Marathon is postponed for six months. It's more difficult to get slots for online grocery shopping even. I could go on and this could get us down. Many people feel frustrated. But this is a time when we need to think back. This psalm might have been written for just this sort of time because God loves his people and we have many examples of that in scripture. For example, God rescued the Hebrews when Moses crossed the Red Sea. God rescued his people when David killed Goliath. God saved Hezekiah's Jerusalem from siege, starvation and death. And each of us probably have other examples from our own life and experience. And we can remember those and remind ourselves. And most importantly, God saves us 
God saves us from the destruction and separation from him, which is our due, because Jesus died on the cross in our place. How else does this psalm change us today? Should we be roaming the streets shouting, God is great? Well, roaming the streets shouting anything is not usually a good way to persuade people. And we might want to avoid being tarnished by association with terrorism. And also, it rarely goes down well to attribute natural disasters, wars, pestilence and plague to the hand of God. But God is great. And like the psalmist, we should proclaim it. However, we do need to do so in a language which speaks to the 21st century, a language which speaks into our culture. One of the things this means is that we need to speak without assuming very much knowledge about Christianity. After all, even English students at university courses need courses in Christianity to understand Shakespeare, Milton and the other greats of English literature. Don't patronise, but don't assume either. Some Christian teaching is seen as immoral by contemporary culture. But this is nothing new. John Stott wrote a great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. What's it called? Christian Counterculture. And in Peter's first letter, we read, Live such good lives amongst the pagans that although they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, although they accuse you of doing wrong, which is the position in which we find ourselves. So we should not be surprised when we are at odds with contemporary thinking. And there are other encouragements. There are Christians in the public eye. In the entertainment industry, we have Chris Pratt, Justin Bieber and Kenai West, who have each affirmed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are prominent politicians like Theresa May, MP, Andrea Leadsom, MP, Conservative commentator Tim Montgomery, Tim Farron, MP, Helen Hayes, MP. You may not think they're all people with whom you agree. You may not think they're all good role models. But they are acknowledging the role of Jesus in their lives. And last year, the then Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, commissioned Bishop uh, Philip Mount Stephen to examine and report about the persecution of Christians. So, let me suggest some ways in which we can proclaim God's greatness to our culture. Perhaps some conversation starters, some things, some hooks on which we can hang things. If you have a job, then the reply to, did you have a good weekend, might be something like, yes, we had a really great church weekend away in Norfolk. And that's what you could have said last Monday. <clears throat> if you're a member of Men at All Saints, you could say, I must get away from the office on time tonight because we have a really good speaker coming to talk about being a Christian in business. If you're a member of TNG, you might be able to say, this summer I'm going to Northern Ireland for a week to run a great beach mission. A great beach mission. And we can ask questions. Do you think God has got a hand in your life? 
If you are in the creative arts, you can write books, you can write music, you can paint, sculpt and dance about how God is great. If you're in the sciences, you can speak about God's role in creation. You can be known as a Christian, and one day someone will ask you about it and want to know how it changes your life, want to know how it speaks into an issue in their life. And amongst all of this, we should keep the central things central as we do these things. What are the central things? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, verse 15. And this psalm tells us that God is great. God is radiant. He is majestic. God is a fair judge and a compassionate saviour. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your blessings to your people over the ages. We pray that you would bless us today as we live through the worldwide crisis of coronavirus. We praise you that your greatness surpasses the ups and downs of our lives. And we pray that we would be able to speak and comfort others so that they would be able to accept your saving greatness for themselves. Amen. Goodbye. <laughs>